I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. Our focus this evening is on the first six verses of chapter 8. Children, here are your questions for this evening. What was the tabernacle in the Old Testament used for? Two, why don't we need a tabernacle, priests, and sacrifices anymore? And three, when Jesus rose from the dead, where did he go? That is, after he walked the earth. For a time, where did he go after that? Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of God. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. But they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And we'll end our reading there for this evening. There ends a reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the instruction and the insight that you give to us from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Lord, your word is truth. We thank you for these words that we know were breathed out by you for our benefit, where we pray that we would heed them and hear you. So minister to us, we pray, as we've read your word now through the preaching of your word. Send your Holy Spirit in a special way. We come to you in our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a good time for us to pause in Hebrews. Actually, that's what the writer of Hebrews does. He pauses at this place about halfway through his letter to recap some things, to review some things, to preview some things as well, to set us up for some things that are coming. He says the point is, and he's been building on this theme of superiority of Jesus' ministry, the excellency of Jesus' ministry. When I use the title His Excellency, I don't mean His Excellency as some trite title, a bone that someone might throw royalty, but what I mean is that his excellency is above all. That is, Jesus' excellency is above all. That's something that the author of Hebrews is reinforcing again and again in his letter. Well, as is no surprise, in Hebrews we're looking back again into the Old Covenant, into the Old Testament, looking at an authorized form of worship that God gave to his people. Some may see what we're going to look at tonight as somewhat repetitive, but that's what reinforcement does. It repeats things, and so we're going to pause tonight, look at this passage, and see how this is reinstating, re 
stating also the things that the writer of Hebrews wants to get across to us. He says, now the point is, we do that if we're trying to explain something, and we've been explaining it well, but we recognize that somebody's not tracking with us. We say, well, the point is this. Let me summarize it for you, and that's sort of what's going on here. What we're dealing with tonight in this summary, in this point that he's making, what's going on here requires us to have what I call an inversion of our thought, to see the heavenly realms as the reality, as the original, and the earthly things as representatives, as the symbolic things. We often think of the heavenly things as sort of ethereal stuff that doesn't have real substance. But you see, we don't really understand heavenly things, so the Lord's given us tangible things. You see, we understand material things. And so he's given us, in the Old Testament, especially when it comes to worship, visual things and tangible things. We might say sensual things that you can, you can taste and touch and smell. Um, but these things were always meant to point us to heaven. I think the commentator Hendrickson said it well when he says, we receive the mental picture of the heavenly original casting a shadow on earth. <clears throat> but this shadow has form and substance. See, we need real substance in order to cast a shadow. In order to cast a shadow, you need something that's of substance. And in this case, the shadow comes down from heaven. And yet the shadows themselves, the types have substance too. They're earthly things. They're touchable things. Three things in particular are highlighted here. The priesthood, the tabernacle, and the offerings. And remember, they're all authorized by God. All authorized by God. First of all, by review, the priesthood. The priesthood, that office, that position of mediators between God and his people with the duties of teaching and of praying for the people and of making sacrifices on behalf of the people. All the priests did that. Most importantly, the high priest was in that position. And then you have the tabernacle, this structure designed to represent entering into, pre- into the presence of God. We dealt with that before in more detail, that it represents going into that real presence of God, most precisely the holy of holies. And the author points out that when Moses was given these plans, he was given them by God. We might say that they were written in stone. Plans for the tabernacle were written in stone and very, very precise. He had to follow them. The builders all had to follow them with precision. And that was this mobile tabernacle, this place of worship that they could move around. And eventually, literally, it would be set in stone in the temple. Again, according to God's precise plans, precise dimensions. And again, it was representative with the heart of it, the heart of hearts of it, the holy of holies. And you'll remember that veil separating everything else from that most holy place, that holy of holies. That veil had woven into it cherubim to show, to remind the people that they had been cut off from the garden with the flaming cherubim protecting Eden from sinners re-entering. So, so much symbolism in the tabernacle. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was one of the most important days. I want you to turn back in your Bibles to Numbers, 
I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. And we may have looked at this before. We'll look at it again and I'll just read through it. But I want you to observe the priest, what he's doing and the structure that he's entering and the sacrifices that he makes on this high holy day known as Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarments on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull in sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense between beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And we'll just end there for tonight. You have this whole, the whole scene of this day of atonement and all the sacrifices and all the blood and all the preparation and those two goats, the one sacrifice and that scapegoat that's sent out into the wilderness. So you, you have this vivid picture, this very clear picture of what had to go on in the temple and what went on once a year to make atonement for all the people and atonement had to be made for the priest himself. So all those offerings, those necessary cleansings, repetitive year after year. It's, it's so important for us to remember that those things were ordained by God. That was legitimate worship for the old covenant people, but again, they weren't to be permanent things. They were always to point ahead. And as we've discovered already, they point ahead to Christ. And so... The author tells us about the substance, the real things, you might say, behind these symbolic things. It was all to point to something greater. So you ask yourself, what has more value, a copy or a real thing? Of course, you would say the real thing has much more value than a copy. Think of some of the things that we think about. Think of blueprints for a house. The house, the blueprints, just paper might have a great design, but unless you have the house, it's not very exciting. Think about things like people who like toy trains, train tracks. They probably like real trains. That's why they have them. How much more powerful and, and impressive are real trains than toy trains? Think about things like 
travel brochures. You look at them and it looks very good. And you can fantasize and you can imagine what it would be like to be in some exotic place, but it's going to pale in comparison to being out having fun in the sun in the real place. You get the idea. Couldn't help but think of this one very local illustration. You probably, or you may know, or you may not know the name Kathy Lee Gifford. She's a television personality. She visited Holland one time. And when she was in Holland, she reported back to her TV people, and she was very proud of the fact that she had gotten a pair of wooden shoes, which was cool. But she was visiting here, and she went to Evergreen Commons. Some of you are members of Evergreen Commons. And here's what she said. She said, Evergreen Commons, the facility, the senior activity facility, is like Disney for adults. Now, I would suggest that if you listen to Kathy Lee Gifford and you came to Holland and you went to Evergreen Commons, nice as it is, and you were expecting Disney, you'd be very disappointed. But you get the idea of of the earthly type paling in comparison to the heavenly reality. Philip Edgecombe Hughes puts it this way, and I'm going to explain some words as we go. He's kind of cerebral, but he says this, an earthly type can be no more than an aid in the apprehension or the grasping of eternal truth. But the heavenly reality cannot be reduced to scale or perfectly made into an accurate miniature because it transcends all that we know and experience. And the transcendental, that which is above all, can never be contained within the finite and falling categories of our world. I would simply say that heaven and the things of heaven are far too glorious to ever be fully contained in anything here on this earth. And so we begin with what the writer says is the reality behind all these types. And we begin with Christ. Who can fathom his eternal greatness, the everlasting Son of God? This heavenly priest, as we've read in the order of Melchizedek, that unique priest that seemed to come out of nowhere, we know he came out of heaven, took on our human flesh. But he comes to earth, this mysterious, unique priest, and yet he's portrayed in Aaron's priesthood, in the Leviticus, Levitical priesthood. We know that he came from heaven to earth, and did the work here, and he did the sacrifice here, we'll get back to that, and then he went up into heaven. But he's not making a sacrifice now, that's done. Now he's doing the work of intercession. And then we have this reality of heaven. A tabernacle not made with hands, a heavenly glimpse of a heavenly reality. I want you to turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 6 because he has a vision of the temple. And it's a vision, but we get a sense of the awe. Probably very familiar passage, but here a vision of this heavenly reality. As you know, he begins this section. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting 
upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What an awesome sight of this heavenly temple, and yet still it's just imagery. The reality is so much more magnificent, so much more beautiful. And that which was on the earth is just representative of that great heavenly reality. Again, that tabernacle and the temple in history, man-made and mobile, but heaven, the reality. Where creatures behold the glory of God. Where angels behold the glory of God. Where the saints who have gone before us behold the glory of God. Heaven is indeed real. But it's not the product of imagination. It's not based on a dream. It's not based on an after-death experience or speculation. The real heaven is so far beyond our imagination that right now in this state we can only handle glimpses. Glimpses and promises. That heaven, the heaven, the original, the real, was never meant to be measured. Never meant to be measured. I say this because I heard something that I'd never heard before. Maybe it's because of my limited exposure to a lot of different kinds of teaching, but I heard this from a very well-known, reputable Bible teacher. I won't mention his name because I believe that he is a very sincere, godly man, far exceeding my ability to ministry, minister. But I heard him on the radio, and he was trying to explain Revelation 21, where you get all these measurements of the New Jerusalem. And he's being very exacting on what heaven will look like according to these measurements. And after explaining dimensions and how much space we'll each have when we get there, he comes across verse 21, which reads, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And then he tried to explain how that's literally what heaven is going to be. And when it came to the fact that each of the 12 gates was made of one giant pearl, he said, you might have a hard time believing that, but God can make a pearl as big as he wants anytime he wants or something like that. But the dimensions that were given anywhere in scripture about the heavenly realms is just a small picture of the absolute glory of the heavens and will always pale in comparison to what we can touch and feel and experience here. And even the best, even the best blissful experience of heaven we have here pales in comparison with the reality. And so Christ in heaven, parallel to the priesthood and the tabernacle, and then the offerings, the sacrifice. Psalm 40, Hebrews 10, 
speak of one who brings himself as a sacrifice. What does Christ has to have to offer? A priest needs to bring something to offer. He can't go into the Holy of Holies. He simply can't. A priest has to bring something to offer. Jesus has a body prepared for that offering, and he goes willingly. And he doesn't go into a Holy of Holies. He goes to the cross. See, the priest couldn't go into the Holy of Holies without a blood sacrifice. Christ could not enter, he- enter heaven unless he offered himself, unless he gave his blood and his body for us. And then conquered, conquered that sacrificial death and rose up from the dead and ascended into heaven. And we read here that he's at the right hand of majesty. That place reserved the right hand for kings sitting down on the throne. But here, this king priest, priests never sat down, but Jesus finished the work. And so he, the king priest, sits down No more sacrifice needed, but he constantly intercedes on our behalf. And so he is the sacrifice. Take it together. He's the priest king. He is the sacrifice. If you need to fill that out, he still speaks today. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Well, this is Christ's excellent ministry. Excellent meaning it far exceeds anything this earth ever could contain, really. He's our reigning mediator, permanent seating as our priest king. The sacrifice is complete, and now he's interceding on our behalf. The thing that always amazes me about that is he's praying for multitudes upon multitudes, and he's praying for you, very specifically, and for me. That's how amazing our high priest is. The new covenant, we'll spend time in that, Lord willing, next time. But we have a better and more permanent, permanent covenant where we worship in spirit and in truth as the priesthood of believers. And it's all based on better promises. God's promises are always good. But the better promises are fulfilled because Messiah has come. A permanent dwelling place has been established. One by the perfect sacrifice, not repeated, but done once and for all. And so even the good and wonderful things we have in Christ is a part of his church, blessing upon blessing, and the kingdom now still don't quite measure up to what's in store. It may seem repetitive again, and that's what reinforcement does, repeats. So the point of the point is this. Don't look back on the old covenant ways. That might not be a temptation for us. It was a real temptation for these original readers. They had come out of generations after generations of Jewish believers. And they were being tempted to go back into the old ways. That might not be a temptation for us, but... But what we do need to know is that we can never rely ultimately on anything earthly, anything man-made. Our trust is in the God of heaven. And when we look back for our redemption, we look back to the cross. 
That's where we look. And we look up to Christ, who is seated at the right hand of glory. And we look ahead to the day when he comes and reigns in his fullness. And anything on this side of glory is going to pale in comparison to that. I want to read for us a hymn to close us called Hail Thou Once Despised Jesus. I'm sure that we've sung it. I know that we've sung it. It's by a man named John Bakewell, written in 1757. We'll close with this and then I'll pray. I'm going to read the whole thing because I think he captures the point here. He captures this summary. Hail thou once despised Jesus. Hail thou Galilean king. Thou didst suffer to release us. Thou didst free salvation bring. Hail thou agonizing savior, bearer of our sin and shame. By thy merits we find favor. Life is given through thy name. Paschal Lamb, by God appointed, all our sins were on thee laid. By almighty love anointed, thou hast full atonement made. All thy people are forgiven through the virtue of thy blood. Opened is the gate of heaven, peace is made twixt man and God. Jesus, hail, enthroned in glory, there forever to abide. All the heavenly hosts adore thee, seated at thy Father's side. Therefore, sinners, thou art pleading, there thou dost our place prepare, ever for us interceding, till in glory we appear. Worship, honor, power, and blessing, thou art worthy to receive. Loudest praises without ceasing, meet it is for us to give. Help ye bright angelic spirits, bring your sweetest, noblest lays. Help to sing our Savior's merits, help to chant Emmanuel's praise. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we do chant your praise. Lord, you have secured salvation for us. Lord, we do thank you for the richness of the old covenant. We thank you for the profound things that we learn in the history of redemption from the very beginning down to the days of Christ. We pray that we would truly appreciate the mighty works of you, our great God, that we can be witnesses to through your living word. We thank you even for all the details of the sacrifices that were simply representative of something far greater. But above all, we're thankful for Jesus, our great high priest, our savior, our Jesus who gave himself for our sakes, not only our high priest, but the very sacrifice that allows us to enter behind him into the Holy of Holies, not in a tabernacle made by man, but heaven itself. Lord, how thankful we are that you've given us a glimpse of that and give us a glimpse of that in our worship and in the blessings that you give us here on earth. But Lord, we know that what's in store for us in time to come is far greater than anything that we could ask or imagine in this life. Lord, we do give you all the praise and glory. Worship, honor, power, and blessing. Thou art worthy to receive. Amen.